in the bus fare. So hopefully it, it works out. And it's great that so many people are here. I can't think of a book launch where there's been over 100 people. So hopefully what we lose in all being in the same room, uh, we will gain by the, the sheer scale of people who can get involved. I'm, I'm also very excited to be discussing this book because I had a preview and read it over the weekend and found it really, really challenging and interesting. So the way this evening will work is I will have an in-conversation with Professor Faradi for probably around 45 minutes, maybe slightly less, maybe slightly more, and then we'll open up to the floor to any of you, uh, <laughs> if you can call it a floor, the virtual floor, uh, to any of you who want to ask questions and make points and pick up some of the, uh, some of the themes that we've brought out of the discussion or ask Professor Faradi to clarify or, or disagree with him. I think we're all about disagreement here. And we aim to wind up about 8.30, although I don't think anyone will come around rattling the keys of the internet. So we might be able to overrun just a little bit. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Frank Faradi. As some of you may already know him, he's a very prolific author. He's a sociologist and social commentator as an emeritus professor of sociology. And recent books include How Fear Works, uh, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, which is a, an ongoing theme of his through across the years, and Populism and the European Culture Wars. Uh, there's a lot happening at the moment, so I think he's being even more prolific with his writing than usual. Uh, so, uh, so welcome, Frank. I hope, I hope we're going to be able to arrange it so you can maybe see both of us at the same time. I don't know. I hope so too, yeah. Uh, nice to see you, Timandra, and uh, nice to see uh, so many people out there in virtual reality land. I, I wanted to, I suppose the thing I want to ask you first is, I found the book quite surprising in many ways because there seemed to be some very paradoxical ideas uh, and I think although you you do in the book try to unravel why things that seem contradictory are not necessarily contradictory but but there were a few things that really leapt out at me uh, you seem to be simultaneously arguing for freedom and for borders and boundaries which you know for me is, is kind of slightly anarchistic I suppose and I like to, to roam freely across both the physical and conceptual range I, I found that a bit counterintuitive you, you also seem to argue that the, the divide between the public and the private is being eroded and washed away, but at the same time that we are obsessed with our own personal space in a way that we haven't really been before. And you also, and I think I found this the, the most interesting, you seem to argue for tolerance, but against being non-judgmental. So you seem to argue for being judgmental and tolerant. Uh, so a lot of the ideas in this book were very surprising to me. So I suppose I wanted to start off just by saying, were you surprised by the development of any of the ideas that you were writing about? I think I was. Uh, the, the, the book began uh, as a result of an experience I had in a few years ago when I was invited to give a lecture to the... Uh, Dutch Philosophy Society. Every summer they do this conference and I was doing the plenary there and their theme was uh, borders and paradoxically the the same week I was also invited to the Belgian Philosophy Society to talk about the same issue which is borders and when I uh, was writing my speech I kind of began by 
thinking that on balance, you know, no borders or open borders are better than borders. And, you know, I, I always presumed in favor of freedom of movement, and I still do, I always presumed that on balance, uh, there should be the least amount of restrictions possible on, on, the, on the way that people make their way. But as I was doing my own work and doing the research on it, I began to realize that, that actually something very interesting had happened. And what happened was that increasingly we, we lived in a world where everybody was arguing for openness, no borders, no boundaries, no restrictions. Um, all kinds of people were saying that we need to have a completely open attitude uh, towards physical uh, and moral space. And as I began to look at it more and more, I began to realize that actually, uh, when you begin to argue against having any boundaries or against having any borders, what you're really arguing for is a kind of uh, loss of freedom. Uh, because uh, one of the um, lessons of history, one of the legacies of human uh, development is that in order for society to evolve, in order for people to, to kind of get ahead and gain control over their lives, they need these symbolic boundaries, these signposts. In many ways, the way to, to think of borders and boundaries, it's not just simply physical entities, but they have a symbolic moral significance, uh, which has got all kinds of implications from making sure that we, we know who we are. Because one of the things that a boundary does is it tells us who we're not, which is very important in the way that human beings first begin to recognize themselves. From the very moment that a, a child is conceived, they will be able to make a distinction between uh, the fact that they're not a, a girl and a girl will know that they're not a boy. That's one of the first developmental recognitions that occurs. And uh, as we get older and older, these boundaries that are really quite important actually give us the clarity uh, that we need to emancipate and liberate ourselves. And if we begin to lose a sense of borders, then we run into trouble. I think a very good example of what I'm talking about uh, is occurring in front of our eyes at the moment, when we seem to have lost uh, the capacity to conceptualize the boundary that separates the present from the past. And a lot of people throughout the Western world are trying to fix the problems of the past instead of addressing the problems of the present, because in their minds, you know, sort of uh, toppling a statue of, 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 of an author in England uh, is more important than doing something about the issues that are confronting them in the, in the here and now. And I think that in that sense, I was very surprised. That th the thing that surprised me more than anything, uh, something that I, I never conceptualized beforehand, is the fact that actually the idea of openness, which has become a foundational value in Western society, you know, anything that's open is always seen as being ipso facto a good thing. Open society, open debate, you know, sort of open, uh, open internet. The minute you put open as a prefix to anything else, it's automatically seen as being really, really good. Actually, uh, has become a medium through which uh, the particularities of human experience become undermined. It's a way that you destroy the private sphere because you demand that it gets opened up to public attention. And through arguing for openness uh, in every single circumstance as a value in and of itself,
he actually destroyed the good qualities of being open, which was uh, the enlightenment idea of being open to new experience, open to experimentation. Openness becomes almost an enforced kind of demand for transparency in all circumstances and in all situations. And I think as a result of that, I became uh, sort of over the months more and more suspicious of open borders and, and the very idea of openness as being a foundational value in contemporary society. And, and yet, ironically, one of the dichotomies that is still popular is the idea that politics today is about being open or closed, that that's the new political divide instead of left and right. Are you an open person or a closed person? It is, and I think one of the things that, again, surprised me was reading uh, Karl Popper and his book, The Open Society, which when I was young, younger, I read, but not all that carefully. But when I reread re it again, I began to realize that what Karl Popper is arguing for is opening everything up because he's very suspicious of communities. He's very suspicious of people's pre-political affiliations. He, he thinks that families are too close. You need to open them up. You, they think that, he thinks that communities are too close. They need to be opened up as well. And in fact, by the time he gets to the end of his book, Popper actually argues that openness is more important than democracy. And that, you know, in a sense, democracy is, is a little bit overrated because often uh, democracy can be uh, sort of too close to people who are not part of that demos. Uh, it's the a demos is, is by definition bounded in space and, and is bounded by a border. And therefore what he says is I actually prefer the imperialism of openness to, to that of democracy. And he does use the word imperialism quite self-consciously as unbalanced, a superior mode of being than, than a closed society. And a closed society in his mind is tribalistic, is narrow-minded, is particularistic, and therefore should be condemned. There's an extraordinary, I'm gonna actually read out a, a bit <laughs> where you quote Popper in the book because it makes extraordinary reading right now at the moment uh, where he says, we could conceive of a society in which men practically never meet face to face, in which all business is conducted by individuals in isolation who communicate by typed letters or telegrams and who go about in closed motor cars. Artificial insemination would even allow propagation without a personal element. Such a fictitious society might be called a completely abstract or depersonalized society. Now, the interesting point is that our modern society resembles in many of its aspects such a completely abstract society. And, and that, that just struck me as so incredibly like the way we are currently forced to live during lockdown, but which in itself just seems a bit like an extension of tendencies that are already happening, where we, where we did live more and more separate lives, connected more by technology than in real life. So it, that idea of an abstract society, I mean, he obviously means it partly in the sense that it's hypothetical, but abstract also presumably in the sense of being taken out of your real physical context, real physical interactions with other human beings and, and the particularity of a time and a place. I mean, if you, if you take this, this book launch, for example, it, it's actually rather wonderful that, I know there's people here from around the world, someone was commenting in the chat, that they're in Australia and it's two o'clock in the morning. So in a sense, we're now divided by time zone, but 
the whole world is connected through technology. Uh, so it has its plus side, but, but in another sense, we're all completely taken out of the particularity of living in a particular place, of being part of a particular physical community. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the, uh, I mean, I think Popper is very interesting because he anticipates a lot of the developments, you know, developments that are associated with uh, what's often mistakenly called neoliberalism, that kind of globalist impulse, which uh, in a sense it has become uh, very powerful in, in particularly in the way in which culturally it's been able to win the battle uh, for uh, arguing that there's something superior about being a citizen of the world, whatever that means, to being a citizen of a particular community or a particular nation. And there's an argument that somehow, uh, if you travel a lot, uh, and if you're, uh, you know, they often make a lot of fun of American people not having passports. And, you know, I'm not, not an advocate of not having passports. I like traveling. But there's an argument. Uh, the argument behind it is, is that if somehow you, you stay within your community and you kind of develop your organic links to the people you live with, that's morally inferior than if you hop around the world in, in package tours and kind of have these kind of varied exp uh, experiences. And what's really behind all this is that it's almost a, a very powerful impulse that uh, privileges denaturalizing people to the point at which they become denationalized, they become detached from their communities. They also become increasingly separated from their family because the family is seen as ultimately the, 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 the nub of the problem. It's in the family that you cultivate your particularities, that you become distinct, that you become aware of, of certain sensibilities that distinguish you from other people. And you know, in a family, you're not an abstract person. You know, you're Timandra or you're Frank, and you, you got very clear associations and very clear links. But if you take people out of those uh, particular uh, circumstances within they live, they then become uh, so supposedly it's said cosmopolitan, but actually they don't become cosmopolitan. They actually become, to some extent, dehumanized. And one of the points that I, I discuss in the book is when Anna uh, Hannah Arendt argues that the minute you actually have a world citizen, you do see yourself as a world citizen. You become detached from any uh, particular experiences. You get to that point, you do at that stage in time become the subject. Of a, not a, of a totalitarian system. You cease to be a citizen, you become a subject of some kind of global international institution, which in her eyes, quite rightly, is far worse than, than the parochial uh, existence uh, within which some of us are forced into. So the argument I'm putting forward is not the, uh, in praise of parochialism, not in praise of not traveling, but basically to, to sensitize ourselves to the fact that if we erode all the boundaries, we become to some extent uh, demoralized. Our, our, our moral sensibilities, which are bound up with certain, uh, certain kind of boundaries and borders, become loosened and becomes weakened and gradually becomes unra unraveled. And in the book, the best example I, I can think of is, is the way in which this boundary then finally ultimately leads to the erosion of the boundary between men and women and children and adults. So you end up with this perverse dichotomy whereby you end up with the 
adultification of children on the one hand and the infantilization of adults on the other hand. Boundary becomes almost completely, totally blurred. And you do end up in a situation where because of this, because this is seen as being unbalanced, really, really positive, in the academic world today, there is a growing tendency to celebrate what they call transgression. That transgression studies are seen as being automatically good because you transgress, you don't recognize any kind of borders. And of course, this transgression is very different than real transgression in the past. In, in the past, when you transgressed, you paid a heavy penalty for that. That had a huge social and personal cost. Today, when you transgress, you get a standing ovation, you, you celebrate it as a brave individual because you've now adopted a different gender, a different sexuality, or, or all the rest of that. So in that sense, the whole celebration of transgression, the celebration of openness, all these ideals, uh, which appear to be progressive and appear to have this kind of positive aspect of it, are entirely corrosive and, 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 and destructive and have this kind of toxic mix of, of dehumanizing our sensibility. Well, this is, this is one of the things I found very interesting and challenging about the book, that you, you kind of connect together some apparently very different things. So like the, the, the desire for open borders and free movement between countries, and then the, the erosion of social categories, some of which people would say, well, it's a good thing that, we, that people can move freely between gender roles, for example, that it doesn't matter whether you're born male or female, you can do what you like, you can wear what you like, call yourself what you like, uh, and, and even conceptual boundaries. So I, I want to try and unpack those a little bit, and maybe break them down a bit. Uh, I mean, to start with your, your point about each of us is born in a particular place, a particular family, and that makes us a particular person instead of that abstract person. There, there was actually, there's a part that I found very moving uh, in the book, which is exactly that about Arendt saying, uh, you, you're born, so as soon as you're born, you are a particular person. You're, you have a particular biology or a particular body. You are you and not somebody else. But then also you add that uh, Del Sol, I think it is, says, but uniquely amongst the animals, we're then kind of born again in that we only become human through being socialized, through, through a particular culture and community and family experience. That is, again, it's not the same. My, my growing up experience is not the same as yours. And so we each become a particular person. And, uh, and I think the, yeah, we, we become humans. Humans become humanized. I, I found that a very, a very moving passage. And that seemed to be a kind of the counterpoint to the idea of Popper's, you have an abstract individual who is literally abstracted from any kind of particular social context and becomes this cosmopolitan individual who can be anywhere in the world and things are just the same. But at the same time, I can see the counter argument. I mean, they, and you're quite right to characterize it as, as a, a little bit of snobbery. It's a little bit of, oh, well, you know, I travel around the world and I'm at home anywhere, uh, not like those hicks who you know, don't even realize the rest of the world doesn't even use dollars or, or whatever. But I also think, isn't, isn't there also a positive ideal, which is, why should the fact that by an accident of birth, I was born, you know, in a comfortably off house in the UK, 
uh, where I am free to get free education, I'm free to travel, I, I have all sorts of opportunities. And had I been born uh, I don't know, in, in the Sudan, for example, uh, I would not have all those opportunities and I wouldn't be able to travel. I wouldn't have a passport to take me around. I wouldn't have material opportunities. Is it fair that by accidents of birth, some of us should have these freedoms and opportunities and some of us shouldn't? And isn't it part of the Enlightenment project of equality that you should forget these accidents of birth and say everybody should have the same freedoms, everybody should get the same treatments. Therefore, it's unfair for us to put a border up and say, well, you, you can't come in here because you weren't born here. And how would you counter that? Because that, that seems to me like the most compelling argument against borders being closed and you know, ultimately the use of force to keep people out of one country who, who want to travel in there. Well, I think there's a number of different issues. First of all, I think it's important to realize that borders are not just simply there to keep people out. Boundaries are not just simply there to basically uh, make mobility impossible. In fact, uh, as I kind of explained in the book, borders are both uh, a bridge from one place to the next. So they can be conceptualized as, as a bridge whereby movement can occur between two places. And then they, are, they also become a door that keeps you know, sort of people out. So borders have different meanings and boundaries have different meanings to them. And it also, it also depends very much on the context. I think that uh, the idea of, of an accident of birth is, is a very interesting idea because I don't think there is such a thing as an accident of, of, of birth Timandra. I don't think you would have been born in the Sudan and still be Timandra. I think you would have been a very different individual. And, and it's important to understand that, you know, that the idea of an accident of, of, of birth basically uh, sort of can be taken to the point at which any particular differences between us from our height to the color of our eyes, you know, to the place that, that we kind of live in, uh, can be seen as being the, uh, a, a, a medium through which we express problems that are constructed not by the accident of our birth, but problems are the, that are a result of social and political factors. And so it's important not to reduce everything to the accident of, the, of birth in the way that it's kind of introduced. And it seems to me that you know, the way that I look at it is that what, what the Enlightenment was, was about was this kind of, um, kind of humanist uh, sort of morality that recognized all of us as being equal uh, and capable of uh, exercising our autonomy, all of us having this equal potential uh, to, to realize certain of our human qualities. And I think that that uh, uh, the moral imperative uh, of a common humanity, I think is really very, very important. That's something that I you know, wholeheartedly subscribe to. But alongside the, the moral impulse uh, that people like Kant and other Enlightenment thinkers were expressing uh, towards a common humanity. There's also the reality that in addition to the common hum humanity, you know, all of us are born in our particularity. All of us are born in certain places and not in other places. And not only that, but all of us develop a sense of ourselves and who we are, principally because 
uh, as we uh, evolve, we realize that we are who we are because we're not like, like, like what they are. Now, some people will call that othering, that you're discriminating, but all the rest of that. But actually, we act as mirrors towards one another, also in our differences. And if you eliminated that and, and tried to kind of create this homogeneous uh, sensibility, that will be at the expense of the very core of, our, of, of who we are as, as, as human beings. That would basically uh, sort of re reduce us uh, to, to, to the first aspect of being born. As you were suggesting earlier on, Christine Del Sol, who's a wonderful, very interesting kind of French philosopher, makes this very simple point that we're born twice. First, biologically, and then secondly, we're born through our socialization as, as kind of human beings. But that second aspect, in many ways, is as important as the first one, our, our biological birth. Otherwise, we'd just be simple biological, physical entities, rather than, as, rather than real moral agents, which is what we become through our element of, of socialization. So I think, I think in that sense, you know, sort of, our, you know, it is important for us to understand that if you eliminate that through getting rid of boundaries and borders, that comes at a very high cost. Now, as it happens, there's no real counterposition between the particular and the universal. There's no uh, real necessity to uh, argue that, you know, I live here, I was born here, therefore I don't want to travel because there is something wonderful in being able to understand how you are humanized, what your particular uh, sort of background is, but you can easily go somewhere else. You can even leave it behind. You can even embrace other dimensions of human experience as, in, terms of, in terms of your life. That, there's no contradiction between, between moving on and staying put as long as we recognize that there is this twin element to the way that we become human beings. And I think uh, for me, uh, sort of, it is very important that both of those sides are understood and appreciated. And if you, if you do that, then, then, then the, the border between the particular and the universal uh, uh, also becomes quite important. One last little point is that it's important to realize that when we use the word cosmopolitan today, it's got nothing in common with the Enlightenment version of cosmopolitanism. You know, when, uh, for example, Immanuel Kant, who, who wrote about cosmopolitanism, quite uh, at length, one of the first important philosophical contribution on the subject. He was at the same time, totally hostile to world government. He was totally hostile because he recognized that if he became unbounded uh, and deterritorialized, de de instead, of, instead of being uh, capable of, of being autonomous human agents, we become flattened out in individuals who wouldn't be able to uh, sort of uh, realize the ambitions of the Enlightenment project that he was so much committed to. So what's the connection between the agency of the individual and being a citizen of a particular territory rather than just being a citizen of the world? Well, a, a citizen of a territory is organically linked to the other citizens. Uh, this can either be done by birth, or by people immigrating in there and, and, and choosing and opting to become citizens. And I think uh, as citizens, we, we become aware of one another and take responsibility from each other in a way that is quite bounded. We, 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 as a demos, you know, sort of uh, as, as a people, 
we are able to uh, sort of change our circumstances and develop a, a public space and, and develop political life precisely because you know sort of we we know the limits within which we can carry out our work and Hannah Arendt, you know, in, in fact, made the point that, that in a sense, uh, historically in ancient Greece, a citizen and, and, and democracy, those ideals were very much bound up with the wall of the city. The wall of the city provided the arena within which a public space could be constructed. And once you go beyond that, then, then basically it becomes very difficult for accountability and responsibility uh, to occur. And, and if you have no accountability and responsibility, the human agency loses its meaning altogether. You, uh, there is no obvious public consequence to what you've done. That you, you become detached from the outcome of the process of public and political life. And that's why, that's why we often find that um, in many respects, uh, sort, of, uh, sort of we are continually struggling, even in a place like Britain or in any other nation state to be active citizens just because the the, the sense of of, of of common responsibility uh, of, of being organically linked to even to previous generations whose ideas we take forward becomes eroded and lost and democracy cannot really work simply uh, uh, as a kind of uh, 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 as, as, a, as, a, as a process that has got no organic connections <coughs> with any particular space. Otherwise, it becomes merely procedural uh, rather than uh, sort of properly democratic. I think this links us quite nicely to one of the other ideas you talk about, which is that the boundary between public and private has increasingly been uh, eroded. Would you like to briefly say why, why you think that's a bad thing? Well, I think that um, two things have happened that are interconnected. As the personal has become political, and as our identity, the people we sleep with, the food that we eat, our lifestyle, all of these things are seen as having political consequences. So the public sphere has become very personalized. And I think it's interesting because you have this twin process occurring. On the one hand, in public, we expect and we demand politicians to behave more and more like reality television stars. And the media is continually pressing politicians to tell the world about their personal problems. And we uh, often praise politicians, public figures, for the honesty with which they talk about their personal disappointments, their family issues, the bad parents that they had, you know, the, the background that they come from. So their personal stories acquires this enormous importance rather than what they've achieved, what their policies are, what they are really all about. And, and therefore you have this complete psychologization uh, of public life that, that is occurring where people get judged more and more on their personal characteristics rather than their uh, political policies and their achievements. But at the same time as this is occurring, the private sphere, because it's now, uh, the private sphere is, 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 is political, the personal is political. The private sphere basically has its door uh, sort of kind of forced open by the pressures of society. And, and you all know, for example, the way in which the, 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 the private 
and the, and the private sphere has changed it, it, its kind of meaning in, in our world. There used to be a time where we all recognized that a private sphere was important, it was essential, because that was the only place we could take our social mask off. That was the place where we could be ourselves. The private sphere was a place where we could be really intimate with each other. We could, we could get a kind of closeness and proximity to one another that was impossible in any other domain of our lives and our experience. And therefore the private sphere had certain virtues uh, uh, that, that was very, very, very clearly recognized. But today, if you look at the discussions around the private sphere, particularly around the family, the family and, and the home is increasingly seen as a dark place. We talk about the dark side of the family, the home, uh, and what's happened in the private sphere is kind of uh, condemned and indicted uh, just by the image and the metaphor of a closed door. I mean, the number of times I've seen the closed door as being equated with you know, somehow uh, the implication of violence and, and child abuse and, and destructive behavior and the demand to open up the doors of the private sphere, the home, and have more transparency there. All those things basically uh, indicate that, uh, that by and large, with these spheres kind of broken down, both of them suffer. And the reason why this is important for us, particularly from a, a democratic point of view, is because, because we recognize that these two spheres uh, exist in a symbiotic relation with each other. You cannot have a, a proper public sphere unless the pressures, the emotional pressures, everyday life or taken out of it and resolved in the private sphere. And you cannot have a healthy private sphere, a, a, a genuinely kind of creative uh, sort of, uh, a, you know, sort of a sphere of intimacy, unless people have a, a, an ability to express their, their kind of wider sentiments within the public domain. So both of them suffer as a result of that. And, and it seems to me that uh, we've had this very destructive process uh, due to the valuation of openness, where, the, where privacy is increasingly seen as something you want to intrude in, you want to micromanage. And the public sphere has been turned into one big reality TV show where people are performing uh, and talking about their personal troubles and making their personal, particularly their identity issues, into, uh, into the stuff of political life. And yet at the same time, you talk about the, the increasing desire for people to say, I'm, I, I need to set limits, I need to set boundaries, uh, and, and you need to set boundaries and you need to be very upfront and basically almost give people a list of rules about how you want to be treated. I mean, you know, people joke about pronouns, like, you know, I want you to use these pronouns about me, but I think it's a much broader thing than that, that people set limits on what, can, what they want people to do to them in relationships or or how they want workmates to treat them. You know, is it okay pre-COVID to, to touch or to touch your shoulder or a handshake? Uh, so it, is this a reaction against that erosion? Do you think, is this the rebirth of the private sphere? People feeling, no, actually I do need some space that's mine or is it something else? Well, I don't think it's the rebirth of the private sphere. It's a very personalized, privatized, uh, sort of atomized, abstract kind of, uh, space that you're creating. You see, in many respects, this, this point that you just raised is the most important uh, uh, sort of point in the book insofar as it pertains to our experience today, which is this. 
the, the same people that are very vociferous how cosmopolitan they are and are continually demanding that borders should be open, that they are so fluid, that they love transgressing uh, and, 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 you know, sort of don't want any walls being built anywhere and are denouncing Trump uh, for his attempt to build that wall in on the Mexican-American border. The very same people who are so 120% uh, open borders are also the same people that are in the forefront on the social media of policing the borders between cultures. So, you know, I don't know, we all noticed that in, in recent years, cultures are policed to the point at which it's quite unprecedented in modern times. I mean, the policing of cultures through the concept of cultural appropriation uh, is, is, is really uh, almost a caricature of this kind of policing process where you, people are carefully uh, sort of uh, exploring and examining whether you or I have got the right to write about that character. Can Frank Ferretti write a play about a Chinese individual or, or about a, an African uh, woman? Is, is that possible? Because that's cultural appropriation. Can I even cook you know, a Chinese meal because I'm, I'm stealing from somebody? Uh, their culture, if I do, can I go to a yoga class? Because yoga class you know, defrauds the Indian people and their culture when it's in the hands of white people. So on the one hand, you have the policing of culture, but more importantly, and this is the real paradox, precisely at the time when everything's got to be open, open borders, we hate borders and boundaries, there is this impulse to personalize space. I mean, first of all, by the popularity of safe spaces. You have to remember when I, when I wrote about safe spaces three years ago, people laughed at me and said, this will all go away. This is just a temporary fad. Well, since three years, the space, safe space phenomenon has expanded from the universities to the private and the public sector in many parts of the Anglo-American sphere. It's now used almost as a taken for granted concept that doesn't invite ridicule in the way it would have done three or four years ago. But even more importantly than safe spaces, there's now a very big discussion uh, about safe, about personal space. And if you go on Amazon, you'll find there are dozens and dozens of self-help books that tells you, that help you to preserve your personal space and your personal boundaries. And boundary maintenance from another person is seen as being really quite important for your psychological sanity. Because if you become too close to each other, you know, sort of then problems will occur. And, you know, we've discussed, some of us, uh, for a few years now about the fact that in England, you know, we have no touch rules, you know, sort of we have to have, to have a different sense of space between adults and children. But all these privatized, personalized forms of, of, of space possession have acquired a, a, real, a real momentum. And I, I think it's quite interesting that, you know, three years before you and the public would have heard about social distancing, I was already discussing the concept of social distancing in relation to the safe space phenomena in my book on the universities, because social distancing as an ideal actually uh, begins to be discussed by sociologists in the United States in the 1920s, particularly in relation to segregation, but also in relation to immigrant communities, and has now come back with a vengeance uh, uh, in, the, in the COVID era. But the COVID era has merely highlighted the cultural 
and social trends that were in existence beforehand. So we can see that opens the call for openness, open borders actually coexists and is parasitical upon the creation of new borders and new boundaries uh, that are in many respects far more pernicious than the worst border because they encloses us as individuals against the rest of the world. Okay, so finally, I, I can see people already itching to come in, but I'm going to monopolize you just for a couple more minutes. I want to bring you back to it in some ways, I think is maybe the main point of the book. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this tension that I was feeling between you arguing for tolerance and you know you've written a whole book saying tolerance is a great thing which, which i have read uh but you also you seem to be really down on non-judgmentalism and 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 you know intuitively they feel like it's the same thing that you you tolerate something because who are you to impose uh you know who am i to impose my view of how the world should be on somebody else uh and therefore i'm being non-judgmental but, but you seem to make a very clear distinction between them. Could you talk me through that? Well, uh, I think that uh, in many ways, from a philosophical and a, and, a, and, a, and a kind of political point of view, the most important chapter of the book is chapter two. And chapter two is, a, is devoted to a, a discussion of, of the idea of moral judgment, because what I argue is that the main reason why all this is happening, you know, all the phenomena that we've been discussing, is because of Western society's loss of judgment. And not only has judgment been lost and, 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 and judgment seen as being a, a very negative phenomenon, but also at the same time as, as people are, are kind of saying being, that judgment is bad, we don't really need that. So at the same time, non-judgmentalism has been transformed into the foundational value of Western society. I argue that there are two foundational values uh, at the moment in, in our society. And one is non-judgmentalism and the other one is openness. And the two are mutually uh, interacted. They mutually reinforce one another. And uh, you know, uh, non-judgmentalism actually is the very opposite of what tolerance is really all about because true tolerance in the way that it evolved historically, was basically about uh, tolerating competing viewpoints. You tolerate everybody's views and everybody's sentiments, regardless of whether or not you agree with them. And the fantastically important uh, sort of and creative dimension of tolerance was that humanity finally got to the point where it was beginning to be confident enough to say, that I totally disagree with your viewpoint. I think what you're saying is utterly wrong, even heretical, you know, even, even, even uh, sort of dangerous. But nevertheless, I tolerate your right to voice those sentiments. In other words, when you say that I tolerate your right to say things that I disagree with, what you're doing is you're judging them, right? If you weren't judging people about their views, there'd be no need to tolerate them because you don't tolerate views you agree with. Otherwise, at that point, toler tolerance becomes emptied of meaning. Tolerance only means something when you tolerate views that you find abhorrent, that you disagree with, that you think are wrong. And I think that uh, with 
uh, and it's, it's not surprising that, that with the rise of non-judgmentalism, you also have a world that's very, very intolerant. Where, for example, you know, when it comes to uh, a, a current discussion that we're having at the, at, at the moment, people say it's totally wrong to judge me. Who are you to judge my identity? Who are you to judge what I'm saying? That's, that's not really on. The people that's, that say, you know, we shouldn't be uh, judged, we shouldn't be shamed, are also the same people that are intolerant towards other people's views. And they basically say, you cannot say those things because they offend me. You cannot say those things because they question my identity. So what we have today uh, is, an, is, an, is a closely connected process with an unprecedented level of intolerance, a level of intolerance that I don't think one has experienced since John Locke wrote about it because I think in some quarters, they, that intolerance has acquired almost a personal, psychological, visceral char character, along with an unprecedented attack on, on the right of moral judgment. And for me, if you're not able to judge, then we cannot have a conversation. I cannot judge, you know, cannot take you seriously, Timandra, unless I'm judging you all the time. And you're not taking me seriously, unless you're judging my views, because part of our conversation is we evaluate, evaluate, we discern and discriminate between different points of views. And that's what takes public life further. Without judgment, there is no public life. There's only a homogeneous flattening out of arguments and discussion. And most importantly, there is what we have today, uh, a heightened level of intolerance of views. That sounds like a very good note on which to bring people in so we can judge their views. And the only thing I ask is that you don't judge me on my haircut. Because uh, it's obviously I'm three months old. I'm not going to hair shame you, don't worry. <laughs> There's someone to come around with clippers. Okay, so we've got, uh, we've certainly got at least 40 minutes left. Um, maybe a little more if we have the energy for it. There's a lot of virtual hands up. I'm, I'm going to do broadly what I would do if this was a real physical event, which is I'll take maybe three or four points or questions and then I will uh, let Frank come back and respond uh, <coughs> to them and then come out again. So Alex Cameron is all there ready and unmuted. Alex, off you go. Thank you, Frank. Um, thanks for that. As usual, uh, you inspire um, and confound me in equal measure. Um, I still, obviously I have to read chapter two on moral judgment, but I still don't quite get, I suppose, the impulse behind no borders. So, uh, if you think it wise, um, a wee bit more on that would be really brilliant. Okay, thank you, Alex. And admirably pithy, because there's a lot of us here. Uh, if you can keep your questions and points as pithy as that, that would be great. So, Nancy McDermott. Um, I wondered if it would be worth talking a little bit more about the family because um, I've done a lot of reading about the way that uh, people understand family today um, and it's really striking that um, the youngest group of, uh, of, of people, people under 30, basically see um, the family as entirely emotional. So, uh, uh, you know, a, a, uh, your Facebook friends can be a family, um, the military unit you're involved in can be a family. Um, and it just, you know, it gets broader and broader and broader. Um, and, and, and I guess, you know, I've, 
I've tried to think about, you know, why there's so much hostility to the family. And I've been thinking that the family is one of the few um, institutions where you are kind of forced to deal with the reality of, uh, of borders. Um, in, a, in a family, it's very clear that children can't get along without you. Um, uh, it's, it's very clear that, you know, being with your family is different from being with other people. And also it's very clear that, um, that you have to think about the future because you have these little people who embody it. Um, and anyway, so that's something I have, I've, I've tried to think about as a way of combating this, um, you know, trying to, trying to, uh, talk about the importance of the family, but without making it into an activity, if that makes any sense. Um, anyway, that's it. Great, thank you, Nancy. Uh, and next up, uh, Kevin Yule. Hi, um, first of all, I hope they let you out of prison for whatever you've done to Mandra. <laughs> um, I just couldn't help but notice. But anyway, that was, that was really interesting. My question is, is really something that comes out of Del Sol which is that it, what's the difference between limits and borders? Because in some ways I, I take the point about the desirability of borders, but she makes this point that, that you know, she says uh, the real problem is that when you have everything as possible, as in Marxism, as in uh, she, you know, fascism and that sort of thing, then she says, um, oh, well, this, this is the actual problem is that we're not recognizing limits and so it strikes me there must be a slight difference between limits and borders in the sense that limits are not desirable necessarily. I can understand the argument for borders. Uh, I think she says, you know, it, she says it, we, we mustn't go too deeply into the mystery. So she draws the, the difference between humanity um, and she, she resists the whole idea that you can scientifically decide what is human and what is not. So I just wonder if you can say, uh, something about that that sort of, uh, you know, is there such a thing as perfectible? Is it limits and, and borders? Are they similar things? Okay, uh, yes, thanks for noticing my Zoom background, which is Alcatraz Prison Yard, uh, where I was, ironically, in much freer times back in February. So I thought it was, I thought it was a very apt background. I, I think I'm going to come back to Frank now, actually, because there's, there's so much already just in those first three questions, the idea of limits versus limitlessness and and all the things embodied in the family and then the no borders question. So Frank, would you like to come back on uh, on some of that and then I will come out again because there's there's quite a lot of other hands also still up. Frank. Yeah, I mean, I don't agree completely with Del Solon, what she calls uh, the problem of illimité um, in the sense that, you know, she's actually getting towards a very interesting problem, but she seems to uh, sort of um, uh, sort of see the problem as being this uh, uh, aspiration, you know, that's kind of modern enlightenment aspiration for going beyond limits, um, which is something I myself share as well. I don't have any problems with uh, going beyond limits in the way that it's kind of conventionally dealt with. But where she is right is, is where she kind of talks about the desire to detach yourself from the limits within which you are. Uh, because the minute you detach yourself from the limits within which you are in that kind of artificial way, you know, the way that hippies used to say, oh man, I'm going to change myself and, and kind of imagine that, you know, sort of, you're now a changed person. You do become, you know, sort of uh, uh, kind of unable to 
uh, sort of have a foundation on, on which you can develop. And I think that the West way of seeing the problem that we're discussing is this. One of the criticisms made about uh, kind of borders and boundaries is that they are conventional. You know, they're not natural. <clears throat> they're human created. And I think that's true. And, and they also say that many of these borders and boundaries are arbitrary. And that's true as well. So for example, the, the age of uh, adulthood you know, uh, is very different in England than in Sweden. And in, 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 uh, in Sweden, you, know, you have 60 or, or child responsibility. Child, children as, as old as 16 and 17, 18 are not criminally held responsible for anything, whereas in England they are. So these are kind of different kind of conventions. Uh, and the point that I would make is that these are conventions that are to some extent arbitrary, but not entirely, because you and I can discuss whether the age of criminal responsibility should be 14 or, or 17, as long as we agree that there should be a, a, an age of criminal responsibility, that the point has got to be reached. There's got to be a, a point at which we hold people responsible as adults in a way that we don't hold them responsible as children. And that goes for all of these different kinds of boundaries. So it seems to me that we need those for very simple reasons. Unless we have those to guide us, it does make a, a kind of community life or moral life very, very difficult. There's a very difficult uh, question that Alex raised, which is what is the impulse behind the open borders? And, and you know, this was the question I tried to uh, address because it became very clear to me very, very fast that the impulse behind open borders wasn't this impulse towards radical transformation of the world, wasn't this kind of desire to uh, sort of um, uh, kind of uh, change the, the world for the better, uh, but basically uh, the impulse behind, you know, behind open borders as for getting rid, rid of boundaries had, had to do with the, this kind of, um, uh, it was, was kind of forced upon individuals by very powerful cultural pressures that exist today that continually attempt to de detach all of us from the past, that continually try to detach all of us, uh, not just from the past, but from the legacy of human achievements, because there are many things in the past that we may well want to detach ourselves from, but we don't want to detach ourselves from the, uh, the gains of the enlightenment, of modern science, the political uh, philosophical insights that, that were developed in the last two, 300 years. We don't want to detach ourselves from you know, Greek philosophy. I mean, there are many things that are part and parcel of who we are. And this impulse to detach people from, from their past necessarily leads to the questioning of, of, of different kinds of, uh, of, of borders and boundaries. And in particular, I think one of the uh, important elements of this attempt to detach ourselves from, from our past is to call into question everything uh, uh, that was seen as being valuable or was important in previous times. And it's called into question on the grounds that because we live in a rapidly changing world, uh, which is continually accelerating ahead, in a new world, the values of the past, the insights of the past, are completely irrelevant. That also pertains to Nancy's question about the family. You know, what's the point of listening to grandma's advice? What's the point of even following the parenting technique of, of your mother? Because in a new world, where everything changes so fast, 
those values have become to some extent irrelevant. And therefore we need to almost create things from a new, from a, from a new kind of beginning. And you find <coughs> these, kinds of, these kinds of sentiments becoming uh, sort of particularly important in relation to uh, kind of community and social life, but they also uh, kind of become uh, almost like, uh, uh, almost create their own ideals because the ideals that are seen as being worth fighting for or, or seen as being positive are the ideals of bandedlessness, of not having any limits. Uh, so for example, if you, if you look at the writings of Agabemon, this kind of Italian political theorist, whose name I can never pronounce, <laughs> um, you know, he basically, and he's been the most forceful critic of open borders, uh, uh, the most forceful philosophical critic of open borders, he argues that the immigrant, the migrant, is the new vanguard that's going to change the world because the, the migrant has got no links with any particular physical space or any particular culture. He is he's the, the future, he's the tomorrow, he's and he basically has got this very disturbing dysto dystopia where in his writings, the migrants are, you know, when they put in a camp, become the equivalent of, of people in concentration camps during the Holocaust. So in his view, any kind of camp on a border, just because, it, because in his eyes, a border violates, you know, human principles, any border on a camp becomes like a concentration camp, like the gas chambers were. But the migrant who's rebelling against that, who is kind of calling things into question, becomes the future citizen through which human transformation is going to occur because they got no limits. So I think in that sense, there is this kind of impulse that which is to almost look for something, almost become, you become so detached that you are open to the idea of total openness. And, and that becomes a, a kind of rewarding element. In the uh, in the impulse towards open borders, the, the way you say that reminds me of the way that children are elevated as because they are a, like a clean sheet because they are not sullied by the the terrible sins of adults. They they are the hope for the future precisely because they don't come attached to anything. They don't come with any baggage, uh, and therefore that's that they're somehow going to be the ones to to change everything almost by virtue of not knowing anything and not having any power and, and so you, know, you become tainted by your particularity, which is why uh, people who are, who are for open borders are also against citizenship. And they're against citizenship on the ground that you became a citizen by being a member of a particular kind of community. And you carry with you, you're tainted by these assumptions, by these cultural influences which you've got to rid of, get rid of if you're going to become, and almost assume a new identity if you're going to become a worthwhile individual in this new world um, that is being projected forward. So uh, back out to all the people waiting. So uh, Kerry Dingle. Just a couple of things. Historically, you've written about the overemphasis on experience as determining our understanding of things. And we see that very much today in things like Black Lives Matter, where obviously, you know, as a white woman, I can't experience 
racism. Um, and therefore I'm ineligible in terms of writing or thinking about it or making a film as I have done about CLR James. So I wonder how you square that with what you said earlier in your introduction about particularity of our experience. And also I wondered if you could, on the same thing, um, how you relate that to things you've also written about quite rightly, which is are very critical of things like infant or childhood determinism in terms of our um, immediate experience? Or is this what you're saying is of the moment in terms of we have to be entirely critical of um, the sort of openness brigade precisely because they have very backward consequences? I just finally can, maybe you could say on this, is colour blindness in terms of um, over overriding our particular experience still completely valid very good pointed question thank you Kerry uh Jagdish hello hello hi hi firstly just get my apology out uh, I haven't read the book um you so can't it's not out yet nobody I know, I, I I'm the only one well me and Frank obviously I think the only people that's, that's that's cheating. I think that's a different kind of border, which uh, you know will needs another chapter. Um, so there may be things that are what I'm saying, which may be covered in the book, but I yeah I don't know. But when I heard about the session, I thought, oh, we're going to talk about national borders, basically, and uh, looking at that perspective. But uh, all the discussion seems to have focused on socio-psychological kind of issues and so on, which are current at present and uh, and so on. But while Frank was talking about the uh, the relation between the, the the private and the public sphere and so on. I, I was thinking through time, I suppose, from last few thousand years, thinking all those kind of arguments could, could apply to any time at any stage. A lot of them, in essence, could apply to any time. So what is what is different? And are we getting preoccupied because we're looking at it through a micro kind of at a small space of time and seeing what is currently kind of important? But I think if you look across a, a, a wider kind of uh, sphere. I mean, the way I was looking at it is that we're probably going through a transition from the old days when the borders were to do with the nation state, the maintenance of property, labor, and means, you know, production, all those kind of things. And to a large degree, that's pretty much still the same. So the, you know, whereas if you go, I don't know, two, three thousand years ago, the borders would have meant something different. You, the borders were defined by, I don't know, your, your feudal landlord or uh, the king or whoever you know, you was ruling you. Today, the borders are defined by the state in which we're living in, except that the transition, which is now going through, which is at a very rapid pace, is with the introduction of the internet, and now with 5G, etc. we're going to have, you know, some of the borders are going to become almost kind of meaningless for most people. I mean, I just got a phone, uh, rang up a call center, which is based in Bangalore. I got a, chain, a phone from a Chinese company, which was, which I received in two days and I paid the Chinese company, you know, in the old capitalism terms, I would have to go and pay somebody here. So the taxis, my taxes would go to the, here to the, well, whoever is ruling the country, yeah, that kind of thing. So I think though it's in transition and things are, are changing kind of quite rapidly. So we, I don't know whether Frank has got a view, which is looking at a, a slightly wider kind of uh, uh, period rather than just what we're seeing as certain kind of issues of preoccupation 
uh, with people today about this socio-psychological thing. I mean, I work for donkeys in local government, and there have been all sorts of isms that have come in from racism, equality, and this color and that color, and they come and go and they come and go. And some people just latch onto them and chase them and kind of write a lot about them and kind of get really obsessed about it. And then a few years later, it's gone. And then another new ism takes over and you get another bunch of training courses pro provided by a lot of people who, who come down and tell you about, you know, boundaries and not touching people in personal space, which was, I think, last year's theme. I think the new theme now, which, you know, maybe some, whatever it is, I don't know what it is because I've kind of given up work. So I think a lot of things are in transition. So I don't know whether Frank's book is, is kind of about a particular space in time, uh, which is a preoccupation of people in metropolitan areas who are basically kind of concerned about some of the issues around them. So I don't know whether, you know, Frank can say something about that. Yeah. Borders, to me, uh, things which came around, the borders as we, they used to be very fluid for hundreds and thousands of years. They were very, they were changing almost every decade or every, you know, every now and then. Now they've been pretty much crystallized for a long time, apart from obviously the USSR splitting up and some of those countries, but they're pretty crystallized now. So I don't know whether we, anyway, I'll, I'll stop yeah. talking. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. No, you covered, <laughs> thrown up lots of issues there. Marvellous. Uh, okay, next, Rosamond Cuxton. Hi. Yeah, so I'm puzzling about um, the, the sort of upshot of this um, would seem to be that we become a homogenised mass because we give up on these particularities in response to these forces. But surely the motivation um, behind a lot of these um, challenges to borders and to particularities is because there is a sense that we are a homogenous mass uh, uh, and there's something wrong with that. So I'm just trying to work, work this out. I mean, could we win? You know, even if we gave in to all this surrender of particularities, surely we'd still be despised ultimately because it made us more homogenous um so so yes just trying to work that out um because the same uh forces that are very hostile to the idea of the masses seem to be the same cultural forces or trends that are at work with this idea of getting rid of borders and then the other thing I just wanted to point to was that, that there is a real um, preference. The main, they may not like particularities in terms of where we, you know, our communities and nation states and things. But there's certainly what's replaced that seems to be a love of categories and categorization and 326 genders instead of two, for instance. Very good points, thank you. Okay, I'm gonna take uh, one more person before I bring Frank in, because I'm very keen everyone should at least get, get a word in. Again, if you can, try and keep your remarks concise, but I know that people have a lot of very interesting things to say, so I don't wanna cut you off too much. Uh, so, Jenny Cunningham. Frank, I think it's definitely one of your best. Um, it, it covers a huge amount of ground. Um, I think, uh, I think one of the things that I really found very compelling about it was the way that the whole refugee question 
um, was used really in many, many illegitimate ways, but it's, it's really become used sort of emotively as a kind of real battering ram um, uh, 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 to break down borders or for the argument to break down borders. And in fact, almost to the extent you suggest that the refugee becomes transformed into the sort of prototype um, you know, of the um, new cosmopolitan citizen. Um, but I, I, have a, I have a question really about, um, about all these academics who are arguing these points about um, transnational, uh, transnationalism, cosmopolitan citizens, rather than national citizens, um, you know, a, a transnational government or almost, although a lot of them don't actually specify that. Um, I mean, how can self-respecting academics really argue these things? I mean, they are, as you point out, completely abstract, completely idealistic, um, you know, in the real world. And yet they use this um, to, to put forward all sorts of, of, of ideas about, um, you know, the, um, the problems with the national, with a national citizenship. So on the one hand, you left wondering, is this just willful delusion? Or is it actually really a, a complete disdain for democracy? and for major, majoritarian um, rule, is, is this a kind of underhand way um, of, of really attacking democracy and majority rule? Well, that's, that's a, a nice judgmental note uh, on which to bring Frank back in, I think. Uh, so the, the ideas are piling up there, Frank, but feel free to, to range across whatever you want to at this point. Yeah, just to... Uh, in response to the question, on, on July 13, the, the, the paperback will be available on Amazon. I think it'll be 22 quid. You can already get the paperback from Rutledge. I think somebody put up the, the link for 21.99. If you want to buy it, you can get that now. Uh, I think Jenny is absolutely right. I mean, you see, a lot of the things I describe, it's, it's not like an ideology that people have embraced it and they have a very clear objective, but it just so happens that all the people that believe in cosmopolitan governance and transnationalism uh, regard democracy as an inferior form of public rule. They, they kind of regard democracy as no big deal. And in particular, because they regard democracy as no big deal, they are completely 100% against the idea of a citizen. They think that citizenship that's nation-based is inherently discriminatory and therefore they prefer a transnational citizen. And what they really have in mind, what they idealize is these international NGOs, non-governmental organizations, you know, like Amnesty International that kind of comment on everything. that are totally unaccountable and un unrepresented. That's their dream of what they call it as a, as a kind of international civil society. Uh, but I think it's important to remember that, that they themselves, are often not totally aware of how, how, how contemptuous and destructive they are, you know, sort of in the way they, they talk about ordinary citizens. It was really brought home to me today. There is a, 
again, I can never pronounce his name, a New York Times columnist called Paul, I call him Paul Krugerrand, he's an economist who got a Nobel Prize. And he's got a Twitter up, which shows a bunch of old white people in Florida. And he's saying COVID is putting to an end, you know, sort of white supremacists. So I think it's, it's really a, a good laugh that old people are dying in Florida. Uh, and, and in his mind, the picture of old white people, you know, sort of walking along like this is a personification of a, a supremacist just because, you know, they're not citizens, transnational citizens in, in the way that he is. Um, uh, Rosie raised a very important question, which is, um, I mean, quite uh, interesting because homogeneity is, is a bad word in the woke vocabulary. You know, homogeneity is seen as being inferior to diversity. And one of the reasons why diversity is valued so much is because it undermines community homogeneity you know, and therefore undermines people who are, have common understanding, taking for granted views. But in, in being against uh, sort of uh, homogeneity, what they actually are putting forward is the homogeneity of the abstract detached individual. And that's the irony. If you can imagine in the book, one of the points that I make is every, every time they say something, they also have a parallel let out, let out clause. So it's not that they're against particularities. They're only against particularities that are organically linked to community or are organically linked to the past. They love the protect particularity of identity. So the way they go about doing things is they would like to detach citizens from their nation and the community and repackage them as identity-based individuals. And, and indeed, one of the arguments they put forward time and time again, it's there all the time, is they say that it's really good that identity politics has come about, that people think their identity about their sexuality, their identity, about their ethnicity, their identity about this and that is so important because the more important identity becomes, the less important becomes the one identity they really hate, which is that of national identity. In other words, every identity is okay, except if you identify with a particular kind of nation. Uh, and just finally on Jagdish's point, I actually think that uh, the argument that nation, national borders, are becoming less important is only partially true because in fact national borders are still very very important and i think we can see in, in the in the present moment of a globalized crisis national borders are becoming far more important than they were at any time in the last 40 or 50 years just the very fact that you have chinese troops beating the shit out of indian uh, soldiers on the chinese indian border indicates that you know, at least somewhere in the world, borders are taken very, very seriously. Great, thank you. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm really gonna try and let everybody get their word in before we finish, which means we probably will overrun. Uh, apologies if you, if you have to get a virtual or real bus anywhere. Uh, so Martin. I'm really looking forward to reading the book as well. Very quickly, um, I like what you said, what you said about toleration, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, perhaps flipping the idea, and I don't know what you think about this, and it, it, it's not toleration as, as a concession, as, you know, putting up with something, 
but toleration as being strong enough to bear something. So if you think of the toleration acts, for example, um, you know, uh, the, the 18th century, where the British state um, saw itself as strong enough to tolerate non-conformity. Um, but funnily enough, not, not strong enough to tolerate Catholicism fully. Um, um, so, so yeah, the, the idea of, of toleration coming from a position of strength, um, not as a kind of grudging um, acceptance of, of, of the other, if you like. So strong sense of self, if you like, and the implications or, you, you know, the implication of that for, for borders. That's it. Great, thank you, and admirably pithy, marvellous. Uh, Sheila. So, thank you so much, it's really, really interesting, and I have a love-hate relationship with paradoxes, but I um, I suppose my two questions for Frank, one is, um, I've heard you speak before about um, the fact that we've been separated from our pasts, and being a problem, so that's part of the problem that we've got, in the sense that we're separated from the past, but equally, um, we're not tied to the suffering of our forefathers. So I think I've heard you say both of those things. And I understand that paradoxes are possible. But how can both of those be true? Um, and then in the, in the same spirit of how can the paradox actually exist? So with regard to the family, um, I've heard you talk in a way that seems to reject psychology it rejects the psychological traditions um or sorry not traditions disciplines and yet this seems to be drawn from psychology so with regard to the family you know the option to leave families you know whether it's fathers mothers or even you know the idea that people divorce their parents you know is is a very recent thing so in previous times to leave a family equaled poverty and death and the obligations were manufactured, we could say, um, to protect women and children um, in certain societies. So again, I've heard, you know, in modern times, the idea that single parenthood is not actually in the interests of working class women. How does that sit with the social constraints of um, the protection that there might be? So protections, versus freedoms. Um, so as I was listening to you, that those were the two main questions I had. It was about that thing about history in the past. And then also, I know the family is a big, big subject, but just in terms of what you've been talking about, um, how can those paradoxes actually sit with each other? And, and I look forward to reading the book. Thank you. Great, thanks, Sheila. Uh, Rachel. A, a really interesting. Um, I wanted to make a point about national, or not a point about a question about national borders and citizenship. Um, because it seems to me that people who are uh, living abroad as migrants, whether they're in the sort of, you know, professional territory as expats or just as work, foreign workers, migrants, which um, I just looked up constitutes about 270 pe million people in the world right now. Um, 
in most cases, it's really hard to become a citizen of the country that you're then living and working in. So I really think it's true that then these people become um, essentially detached or deterritorialized um, and formally disenfranchised, like you can't vote, you can't um, take part in civil society to the full extent as a citizen of that country. So I'm just interested to know, what would you say then is the solution to this situation? Should we be arguing that borders should perhaps be more uh, enforced, um, but that people should be able to become citizens of a country quicker? Um, because also at the moment, it's the fact that people say, uh, we're living in a globalized world. I would say, having lived abroad, I say, well, yes, but people who paint it, a picture of it being this kind of easy come, easy go, or you can just go and live here and live there is patently not true. There's always loads of bureaucracy, loads of form filling, lots of barriers. Um, and, but goods can move around freely, but people can't. Very good point. Uh, and finally, before I bring Frank back in, I know that Ella, although she's she's the host, she also actually wanted to chip in and say something. So Ella, why don't you chip in now and then I'll bring Frank back in. Thank you, Tandra. Yeah, I mean, Frank, I think I just wanted to put it, um, put the question in terms of something that's, when I think about borders at the moment, I, the first thing that comes to mind is the trans debate, um, just to give it the kind of a tangible example. And obviously that discussion is, is fascinating because on the one hand, um, we are told that it is progressive to be, you know, borderless, fluid, everything goes, there, there are no sort of solid definitions. And then obviously the other, but at the same time, um, trans activists who are, want to assert the fact that, for example, trans women are women, um, have very clear distinctions between uh, genders. So, you, so actually you can't be fluid, you have to be very defined even if the definition is you know this very sort of small thing like uh, pansexual, you know all these very tiny, they actually seem to be a lot of the time putting up borders. But the question I have is really you know can you, what I want you to sort of do is make, make the positive case for why borders in that kind of discussion for example about gender is a positive thing because I think instinctively um, you know, I do any instinctively when I come to thinking about gender, would like things to be kind of culturally um, open to the degree of which, you know, I'm a lot of the time unsatisfied by the definitions that people come up for, for manhood or womanhood. But, but what is the positive argument for the necessity for, you know, arguing for borders in the way in which society organises itself you know, the way in which children develop is one thing, but it, among adults, what is the positive in arguing for borders in a discussion like gender, where it seems to be that actually, when people are, the, the people that are arguing for ever increasing sets of borders, um, seem to be not progressive at all. That was it. Okay, well, I'm, actually, I'm glad you raised that, because it's one of the things that I find very tricky, because on the one hand, I think, well, it shouldn't really matter. Again, it shouldn't really matter for most things in life. Obviously, there's various reproductive functions for which it does matter, but for most things in life, it shouldn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. But then on the other hand, uh, to be told that you should just be able to decide 
seems to me like well but in that case you're saying that it does matter and so which, which one is it so please clear that one up for us frank and then uh, and then go on and deal with all the other stuff right in in my chapter nine uh it's on the binary and i i don't don't just look at the trans issue but i look at the way, the way in which the very category of binary is not pathologized in academia, that it's wrong to think you know, in a binary kind of a way. Uh, and the reason for that is it's got to do with judgment because a binary is based upon a judgment of right and wrong, of light and dark. I mean, human beings have relied on binaries as a way of developing a whole number of moral categories and also categories that help them to understand the world around them. Uh, one of the things to, to remember, and this is quite an important point, is that uh, whatever we discuss here and whatever is said in the book, we don't particularly care what you do as an individual. In other words, if you want to, you know, if you think that you are a new gender that never existed before, half man, half woman, half whatever, that's cool. You can be whatever you want. We're not actually, you know, saying that, you know, we're you know we're telling you you know what you should be now, people have you know, are entitled to make decisions as long as they're prepared to live with the consequences of those decisions that's not a problem the problem is is when you have people who and, and it's particularly uh, as i've seen the very heightened form in the trans discussion who basically say that uh, you know sort of you know even though i was born as a biological man and I've got the reproductive organs usually associated with people like me. I am a woman just like you are, Ella. Right? There is no difference. You know, I'm just like you. And when you have that, then what is at issue is no longer a statement about what they are, you know, which we're we are very open-minded about, very liberal about. You can be whoever you want. They are based, and, and not only that, but they're saying that unless you recognize you know, that I'm a woman, and that, you know, a woman, you know, uh, you know it's, it's wrong to call a woman only those people who were born with female reproductive organs, right? Then what you have is a situation where, you know, their ability to, you know, to, you know, to be who they are, it doesn't stop with them. They're forcing other people, they're forcing other people to accept their definition, right? And they're doing two things when that occurs. On the one hand, they break down the boundary, you know, between the fact that there are essentially two biological sexes. Right? That's something one can take for granted. There, you know, until now there are. I mean, that's a boundary that has been recognized for thousands of years as being, uh, you know, sort of quite critical. So they're calling that boundary in, 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 into, in, into question, but at the same time as doing that, they're also building a boundary around themselves so that you cannot question their personal definition of who they are and how they define themselves. You cannot say, well, actually, I don't think you're a woman. I think you're a man wearing ladies' clothes. You cannot say that without incurring, uh, these days, a, a variety of legal penalties. So in that sense, we have a, a very big problem here because you have both a kind of uh, destroying boundaries but also recreating them <clears throat> and the way to understand what's going on and this is the the cultural dynamic is that the it's the old boundaries the conventions of 
last 2,000 years that are being called into question, some of which are not brilliant, others are very sensible, others are totally essential for us to live our lives. It's totally essential that there be a boundary between children and adults, as it's totally essential that there be a boundary between men and women. These are really essential for the reproduction of humanity. So not only are they calling that into question, but at the same time, they're creating a whole set of new boundaries, safe spaces, which they guard with the kind of jealousy and, and, the, and, 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 and if they had machine guns with, with the kind of coercions that are usually associated with the defense of national borders. Right? I think that, that's something that we should uh, kind of bear in mind. On the question of, 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 of migrants and citizens, I think it depends, a lot depends upon the context because I don't think that we could have a, a one size fit all kind of answer, but by and large, it seems to me that you know, sort of, uh, if immigrants, so that, you know, I mean, and there's a difference between a migrant and an immigrant, because a migrant ends up in a particular place, not necessarily because that's where they chose to be. Uh, they're different than an immigrant who Im emigrates to a particular country. That's their country of choice. If they commit to becoming a citizen, right, then they should be given the right of being a citizen. I think that's only fair, but they have to make that commitment and citizenship should not be just given out to anybody just because they were right at the door. Not because you want to exclude them, but because becoming a citizen and being a citizen involves assuming a, a responsibility for the future of that society. It, it's, a, it's a privilege to be a citizen uh, rather than an automatic right. And that privilege requires that you demonstrate a commitment to that, that kind of way of life and, that, and to that sort of, um, particular community. So that's how I would kind of pose that. <clears throat> on, on, on the question about the past and history, I, I think that, you know, it's not that we want to be sentimental about the past. And we don't want to be sentimental about our grandparents or about our ancestors, you know, sort of, and assume an uncritical orientation towards them. But what we want to be, uh, uh, what we want to uphold is this process where there's a, an intergenerational connection that is built up over a period of time. And that intergenerational connection is important because it becomes the medium through which uh, traditions and ideals about the family, about the particular family in that particular community are then handed over to the next generation and becomes the medium through which we develop a relation of care, both for the old people, the el elderly, but also for the young. And it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, you cannot have a concept, a philosophical concept of responsibility that actually means anything, unless that idea of responsibility is, uh, is related to intergenerational relations. I mean, they are the foundation, they are the embodiment on which responsibility is actually constructed. In other words, before I could be responsible for somebody down the street, another human being, you know, I, I will have had to learn what being responsible is within the context of that intergenerational reaction. And that's why it's so dangerous to try to detach us from, our, from the previous generations, so dangerous to detach us from our history. And that's why we have to uh, have a, a very strong sense of, of, of family life
that's generationally bounded. Not because we want to be continually in touch with our grandparents and everybody else. You can move away if you, if you like to, but we can only learn those lessons of responsibility within that particular context. And that's why very often you'll find that family forms that are detached from generations are, are struggling with developing an idea of adult responsibility for children or children developing a responsibility for others. On the question of toleration, it's a, different, it's a difficult question. I, I think that, uh, I mean, for me, toleration is, is never uh, done begrudgingly. You know, for me, toleration and being a tolerant community is a way of occupying the moral high ground. It's a way of saying you know, that we are confident enough in our beliefs and in our culture and who we are to be able to allow everybody to express their views regardless of whether we agree with them or not. And I think that that confidence and that kind of, uh, that, that kind of uh, value that you attach to the hearing of other people's views is very important because in being tolerant, what you're also saying is that it's much more important that that, that person that I disagree with gets a chance to express their views, their wrong views, than shutting it down because I might be able to learn from them. And not only that, but it's only through uh, sort of arguing against their wrong views that I will learn from myself really what I think. Because very often it's when you're forced to argue against somebody else that you really realize what it is that you, you genuinely believe in rather than what you were told in the past. At the moment, America and Britain is going through a process of what I call toleration in reverse, where we're not only cutting and curbing free speech, what we're also doing is we're being intolerant towards what you believe what's in your head. So we have all these new concepts like microaggression, where you criticize not what you do or what you said, but your, your kind of unconscious bias. And now we all have unconscious thoughts, but who's gonna tell us what they are and who has got the right to police our unconsciousness and unconscious thoughts. And we now have these workshops in universities which are designed to change your inner thoughts and actually attempt to colonize. So the, the boundary between the self and public sphere is broken down to the point where you're trying to change people's inner thoughts and, and kind of take control and mastery over that. So in many ways, we're going backwards in terms of the way that toleration uh, works. Even the boundary of the skull is being abolished in terms I'm of- I'm afraid so. My, my beautiful skull is being colonized, <laughs> yes. Right, uh, now we are technically over time, um, but I do want to at least give everyone a chance to have their say. So what, I, what I'm going to do is, I can see five hands up virtually. So I'm going to let all of those people have their say and then come back to Frank to, to round us off with, with some final thoughts. Uh, and then you, you can all go off to the virtual book table and the, and the virtual wine bar and, uh, and chat among yourselves. So it probably that means that not everybody's question will get answered, but at least you'll, you'll get to have your say. So Chris. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading the book, Frank. Um, but um, yeah, I'm still trying to get my head around this uh, apparent contradiction between borders and openness because it seems like it's um, a, a slightly kind of uh, false counterposition in some ways. 
Um, and it strikes me that uh, the real question is what we're saying is what type of borders and values uh, that we're actually standing for. Um, and um, because I don't think there'd be many people who would actually disagree with or uh, disagree with the idea of borders. Um, because the thing is like identity politics and you know um, is completely founded on sort of um, increasing kind of borders uh, social barriers uh, to the nth degree and uh, we've seen like you know with Black Lives Matter just how um, destructive um, that can be so uh, counterposed to that right um, which is certainly nothing to do with like openness um, counterposed to that, uh, you know, I mean, I've been having lots of arguments with people online um, and um, counterposed to that, as I said, is I've been putting the ideas of uh, universalism and equality and democracy, which are um, in comparison forms of like um, openness, as far as I can see. So, uh, as I said, isn't it just a question actually of um, what type of borders and values uh, we're sort of arguing about rather than uh, borders versus openness? Okay, brilliant, thank you. Uh, Alka. Thank you, thank you. Um, thank you, Frank. Uh, a quick point and a, and a quick question. Um, so it's, from what from what you've been saying then and what it seems that the quote it's not so much i actually wouldn't see it as much as which borders but rather it's a question of um it, what we're seeing is like a, a new elite that's trying to establish its its uh its, its own its own borders but the question is 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 it's a question of authority they're trying to who has the authority to define whatever borders however you define them it's an authority struggle going on here, moral, political, epistemological, the whole, the whole caboodle. And it seems so what they what seems to be coming from these new elites and their forming ideology is that the price of having a say in their society as they would want it is to accept the most degraded view of what it is to be an individual, the most degraded view of community and what people are, are, are capable of. So it is deeply deeply pernicious and, and has to be has to be fought and I, I think um, that does bring me to one on the color blindness thing I mean I want to hold on to that even though as soon as you say it I'm accused of being a racist but it seems so you've got to ask ourselves well how can we pose it what you're saying to say your color being color blind is not saying you're disregarding everybody's experience their individual social or private experience what you're saying is is that you think there's something prior to that. And that something prior is a more fundamental philosophical sense of being a human being. And I, but I think if you say that, that does cause a problem if you're then gonna say, go with a kind of second birth thesis, because then you're saying the power to form you is socialization. And if society is racist or unequal and everything, then that's, um, then you can see, well, then, then it makes sense to think, well, you change what goes on at that social level and then you change people and then you change society. But if you say, no, we are all actually equal as qua human beings with our Kantian faculties. Um, and then they develop in particular ways in different societies. And we have 
because of our Kantian faculties, um, which we can develop if we choose to, we can then decide which borders and, and which, which arguments are crap and which are better. And just quickly, the quick question, Frank, citizenship and privilege. I totally agree you can't kind of dole it out like sweeties, but I am worried about the idea of posing it as a privilege because it does seem to me it's, it, it's setting up a door for a kind of second tier citizenship where it's a privilege, you meet the criteria, but then what if five, 10 years down the line, you don't meet the criteria? Can that privilege be taken away? Great, thank you very much. Uh, Usha. Um, thank you. Um, I'll, I'll make it quick, I'm conscious of time. It's not so much a question, but perhaps a comment and an observation and maybe um, Frank would do a follow-up book on this, I'm not sure. Um, it, I, it, when it comes to the question of borders, I've been then consequently fascinated by the consequence of, of its consequence in terms of what happens to that entity, whether we call it a nation state or a territory. And in recent weeks, I've been um, quite fascinated by some of the uh, discussions that are coming out from tech entrepreneurs, particularly based in Silicon Valley, who um, are looking at the centralization of internet power in the hands of a very few American companies and looking at how technology is slowly starting to decentralize itself. And there are a couple of really interesting books coming out um, so tech entrepreneurs are discussing and planning uh, the discussions about building smart cities, which are essentially cloud-based communities where the work is organized around remote interactions, physical distancing, um, but socially, uh, technologically networked and connected, um, building cities around um, crypto asset ecosystems, um, you know, so currently we, we find that tech companies are dominated and centralized, but many countries like China, Russia and India are already starting to build their own ecosystems, their digital ecosystems and borders building. Um, so the general idea seems to be, let's build a community first, let's go cloud first, land next, let's build a community first and then materialize into real estate. Um, but within that sort of adopt some of the principles of democracy, such as virtualizing um, social interactions and evolving certain civilized norms and codes of conduct, which there are, I think, even a couple of books out on Amazon on building smart cities, which I found very fascinating. And I don't think that is far off, to be honest, because I, I see that particularly when looking at the work of fandom and fan communities. When you look at um, people who call us, you know, fans who call us around a particular celebrity or a pop star or a, or a boy band or something like that, they genuinely see themselves as a democratic country without borders that who are bound by technology and a particularity and an identity that allows them to coalesce around a common object of desire, where, which allows them to shape their own particular identity and sense of connectedness around what brings them together, kind of like a borderless um, country in itself. So that was just the point that I wanted to make, that's all, thank you. Yeah, very, very salient, it's, it's that question of whether, whether technology in fact enables Popper's abstract citizen and abstract society to become a reality like a like a more permanent version of us in this book launch gathering around frank's book as our object of desire 
Uh, so Alex Sandish. Thank you. Um, so Frank, you've, um, you've talked about um, both borders and boundaries. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering whether, whether it's um, important to distinguish between the two of them. And, um, uh, you know, for me, I see, uh, and I might see this differently from other people, but I see a border more as a circle. And obviously, you've, you've, which encompasses something. Um, and you've talked it, about it in relation uh, to a, a physical border around a, a country or, or, or a community. Um, but, um, and then I see a, a boundary as a line, which, um, you know, and, and most of the, the boundaries we've talked about tonight are, um, are abstract boundaries between adults and child, genders and so forth. So, um, that, but they're both, so, so I'd say a, a, a border is a type of boundary, but, but do we need to, uh, does the difference matter? Um, obviously, there's, they both involve a judgment, and I guess that's, that's what your book is about. Um, and, but, but also they have a relationship. So to just throw one out there, you, in, in relation to say Brexit, you could see how difficult it was always going to be for us to draw, uh, to come up with the boundaries uh, or borders between uh, say Ireland and, and Northern Ireland. Um, and uh, because we don't really have a, I don't think we have a concept or we, we find it very difficult to give meaning um, to the nation of the United Kingdom today. So uh, that's my question. Okay, how about specific? Uh, and finally, uh, you get the last word from the audience, Gregor, so no pressure, but make it really good. Great. Um, thank you. Uh, I thought that Alex's point that he just made was really interesting. Uh, what's the difference between a border and a boundary, drawing the boundaries there? Um, and that question of, of, um, of borders and boundaries being about, essentially about meaning, um, strikes me as one of the really powerful thrusts of, um, of, of the book that I have not read. Um, and I wanted to ask um, uh, a question about, that relates also to a point that, that um, Chris Sharp was making and that Alka was making, um, talking about why not argue um, about specific borders or specific boundaries, um, uh, the, the, uh, boundaries and borders that um, we might think are important, for example, boundaries and borders around the individual versus um, everybody else, or, or the difference between adults and children, those kind of boundaries. Why, it's a question, Frank, about how you decided to frame your argument. Why, rather than choosing specific boundaries and borders to argue about, right, why argue for a general defense of borders? Um, uh, as you were saying, as you were saying, with respect to identity politics, there are um, there's, there's lots of arguments for no bo no borders and no boundaries, but they but there's a very clear policing of certain borders, a clear policing of certain boundaries. Um, why not uh, target and argue against the specific borders and boundaries and argue for? Um, uh, other certain specific borders and boundaries and other certain kinds of forms of openness. Why not do that rather than frame the, the argument as a, um, as a kind of general defense of borders and boundaries? That's the question. Well, how beautifully, Gregor, you have essentially segued back for Frank into the entire title and justification of his book for his last words. Frank, uh, We've got about five minutes left, so clearly you're not going to cover everything that people have raised in that last section. 
whatever is useful to you to, to, to wrap everything up together uh, and leave people with something coherent to take away or maybe something provocative and incoherent. I don't know, it's entirely up to you. Over to you, Frank, the last word is yours. Yeah, thanks to Mandarin and uh, thanks everybody for the, the contribution and for, for taking uh, part in this. I don't know, uh, the reason why I'm defending borders is because borders and boundaries, right, and the two are actually interconnected, are uh, essential for human beings to gain and then uh, and find meaning and express meaning um, in one form or another. And it seems to me that, you know, what I'm really most against uh, 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 is, 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 is the people who are against the borders rather than being for the borders, if you understand what I'm saying. In other words, my, the aim of the book is to be critical of those people who uncritically question borders and boundaries. And somebody, I think it was Chris was saying, nobody's really doing that. But if you go to a bookshop, if you go to Amazon, there are loads and loads of books being published at the moment that are all against borders. And, and certainly in academia, you'll find that there are loads of people who have uh, made that particular point of view their own. Uh, so in that sense, I'm, I think that uh, what, I'm trying, what I'm arguing is uh, something that's not being argued at the moment uh, for the very simple reason that people either have a very narrow idea what a border is or a and, and they're for it or a narrow idea what border is and they're against it. Um, one of the uh, interesting points that was made about, is about technology which uh, you know, is fascinating because uh, you would think that with all the, I mean, the technology is the one thing that's got the capacity to become genuinely global at this particular moment in time. And people have given a lot of examples. However, I think there's two uh, problems with the technologically focused arguments. One is that even with the development of new technologies, new digital technologies, even with the uh, cloud, based kind of spaces that are being constructed, even with the uh, innovations that are being uh, made in chain block technology, Bitcoins and everything else, at the end of the day, digital technology, like any other technology, is still dependent upon material reality. In other words, you cannot have Bitcoins and blockchain technology without the energy sources that are kind of fundamental for driving it. And those energy sources, are not available on, on, a, on iCloud. Those energy sources are embodied and, 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 and based within particular physical spaces. And I think that to that extent, we can say that there's a kind of parallel process working here, which is the globalization of technology, this attempt to transcend all the limits, whilst reality, the real uh, sort of the force of necessity of, of limits still imposes itself and, and, and which is why you will find that you have such competition occurring over technology between nation states. I think China and America are, are very uh, interesting examples uh, in relation to that. I also think, and, and I haven't got time to go into all the, all the different arguments. I also think it's important not to confuse democracy with participation because what technology does is it gives people the opportunity to participate but democracy is gonna be seen as a more specific standalone concept. One of the ideas I look at in the book is what I call the contamination of concepts, where you break down the boundary between concepts 
and uh, other phenomena. So for example, democracy is a very good uh, example of how you contaminate uh, a concept by calling everything democracy. You have democracy within the family, you know, you have, you have democratic decision-making, you know, sort of uh, in, in a Boy Scout setting. You have democracy being, uh, being shown to children in schools. You have, you know, democracy used in all kinds of settings. Whereas in fact, democracy, in the way that I understand it, only makes sense in one context, which is in the, in the public domain of political life, where you have citizens exercising their agency democratically by having this particular right uh, towards. So I think that the contamination of concepts, which is quite banned up, and we haven't discussed it with this discussion, uh, it's particularly relevant to the online experience because what's happening in online is, is that the online world uncritically takes uh, kind of categories and concepts which are re relevant for the offline experience which are embodied and based upon specific uh, uh, relationships and takes them into the, uh, in, into the domain of, 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 the, of the internet. And okay, you can use the same words, you know, internet democracy, but it has a very different meaning and actually corrupts the meaning of its original idea, which is not really about just participant, it's not about just process or being allowed to say or do something. It's got much more fundamental aspects about that, much more important dimensions about that. But I look forward to more criticism from you people. And uh, I think the book will raise a lot of interesting questions uh, that I hope that will uh, trigger uh, a kind of a constructive reaction and, uh, and will stimulate you to look at some of these issues in a slightly different way. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. That was really interesting. And thank all of you for your questions and, and your points on the chat, which I didn't manage to read simultaneously. It's been a really stimulating evening. And thank you, Ella and the Academy of Ideas for organising it. And on that note, I'm going to hand back to Ella to...